chapter 5, and this morning we come on to verse 13. 1 John chapter 5, verse 13, where John has been telling us how we can be assured that we belong to Jesus. And at verse 13, it's on page 1228 of the Pew Bible, he says this, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life. This is the confidence we have in approaching God, that if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us, and if we know that He hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have what we asked of Him. Now, as we look at this, we're obviously going to be looking at the whole question of prayer, and in particular, assurance in prayer and confidence in prayer. And we have a real difficulty because many Christians misunderstand prayer. And I'm I'm going to say some things this morning that, depending on the background that you come from, um, you may be inclined to take it personally. Don't. Um, This is kind of like a general shot, uh, not aimed at any particular target. And for me as well, it helps to think about our practice of prayer. I mean, I'll give you an example. I used to think that anyone saying prayers collectively, like we did the confession of sin, that that was kind of evil almost, that that was us on our way to joining Rome and and things like that. Um, And I used to think it was really wrong. I used to say, prayer's better when it's free. But then I would go to Christian union meetings, and although it was free prayer, all the words were the same, and especially the word just. Uh, when I was at university, everyone just wanted to do something. Lord, we just want to praise you, and we just want to ask this, and we just want to do that. And someone who wasn't a Christian came to one of our meetings and said, why do you always just want to do something? Why can't you just do it? And, and it was very interesting, the way that language is used. So we're going to look at that. So uh, we're going to think about language and how we pray. But the first thing we notice is just in, in, in general, assurance The verse there, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. Real assurance is very, very important. How can you tell people about Jesus if you're not sure? How can you pray if you're not sure? How can you live the Christian life if you're not sure? With great difficulty. It can be done, but with great difficulty. John wrote his gospel so that the readers might read and believe and have eternal life. It is interesting that the purpose of John's gospel is for non-Christians. It is one of the most deeply theological books you will ever, ever read, and he wrote it for non-Christians. But this is written that you may believe. But he wrote his letter to those who were already Christians, and he wrote it so that those who believe would have confidence. Back in verses 6 to 12 that we looked at a couple of weeks ago, he, he's giving us reasons how we can be assured that we believe and we, we trust in Jesus, not in ourselves, not in our faith, and so on. And he's really saying, if you believe these things, I write these things, he says, if you believe them, then there will be a joy and a vibrancy in your life. Did they not have it already? Possibly. Possibly. But it needs to be deeper. And I would suggest no matter who you are, Your assurance of Jesus needs to be deeper. You can sing, blessed assurance, Jesus is mine, or what a foretaste of glory divine. You can sing it, 
but you need to experience it and to know it deeper. Small example, this week I was reading uh, Tertullian on the resurrection, and as I was reading it, it's, it's fantastic stuff actually, I was reading it, I thought, you know, I really believe this. Not as a doctrine, not as something to tick and say, well, that's what I believe, but as something that is profoundly real. It was for me just a great joy to think of my body being renewed, completely bizarre at one level, thinking this is flesh, this hand will be renewed, this, this head will be renewed, everything will be renewed. This is not just the creed, this is the reality, and it's the same with Jesus Christ. We believe in Jesus Christ, not as someone or, or some doctrine, or some teaching, or something in, in a book, or some concept that's just words in our head, but in reality as a person. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life. Belief in the name. This is His command, to believe in the name of His Son, Jesus Christ, and to love one another as He commanded us. Belief in the name just simply means this, It's all that Jesus has revealed Himself to be in His full person, all that the name stands for. Some people use the name of Jesus like Hare Krishna, like chant. They just keep saying, I keep saying Jesus, 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 and that somehow that will make them more spiritual or make them trust more. But that's not what's being said here. Belief in the name of Jesus is in in everything that Jesus is. who he reveals. And that's why it's so important for us when we come and we look at God's Word and when we come and we worship, that there is content to what we do, that there is teaching, because you can't worship an unknown God. That's what Paul said in Athens, isn't it? To the Greeks, you've got a statue to an unknown God. Well, this unknown God, I am going to proclaim to you. So, we can have real assurance, and if you are a a Christian, you can have that real assurance. And if you're not a Christian, one of the biggest objections I meet to Christianity from those who are not Christians is to say, how can you ever know? I'm telling you, you know. You know when you meet Jesus. You know. But that leads on to boldness in prayer. Verse 14, this is the confidence we have in approaching God that if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. And that word confidence, the word paresia, means boldness. We can boldly approach the throne of grace. We can ask anything according to His will. And this is where we come on to this whole subject of prayer. Now, this is very, very, very important. What is prayer? Prayer is not a device for inducing God to change His mind and do what we want. I honestly believe that most Christians perceive prayer as being that, that God is up there and that we want something and we have to go and persuade Him. That's what prayer is in in, in the minds of many people. Prayer is not that. It is not a technique It is a relationship, and that's not a cliche. Now, let me give you a couple of other things that it is not, and tied in with that. It is not magic, and it is not meditation. What do we mean by magic? 
It's not magic in the sense that we manipulate supernatural powers or the supreme supernatural power to get our will. There are Christians who seem to believe that if only they pray in a certain way or pray for long enough or pray fervently enough or say the right words, that God will be manipulated to do what we want. And that's where you get language of things like, I'm going to claim, I'm going to name, I'm going to do all this. And my words have that power. Your words have no power whatsoever. None. You seriously think you can manipulate God. You seriously think you can persuade God. You seriously think that God doesn't know and that he's waiting for you to give the information. That magical view of prayer is a real curse. And it's the same with the meditation. Now, I'm, I'm not against meditation at all. I think meditation is a great thing to do. I think it's a good idea to, to stop and to think and so on. But the way that people use meditation and the way that it's, it's being used in the Christian church a lot as well is this. It's become a technique whereby we generate an altered state of consciousness where our powers are elevated to a supernatural level. So magic is we persuade God. Meditation becomes we raise ourselves. We raise our consciousness. If you chant Hare Krishna for hours on end, you will become more spiritual at one level. You really will. I mean, it just, you just go on and on and on and on and on and on and on, and it really does. Um, at some point, you're going to alter someone's consciousness, and probably the people around you are probably going to have their consciousness completely altered. But it works. Certain types of meditation do work. They're about altering your consciousness. And when it happens, you feel, well, this is great. But no. See, you see this happen in Christian terms. How do I say? There's only one way to say this. Just say it. There are people who say, well, if we pray 24-7, isn't this wonderful? And the answer is, yes, if you're really into prayer, that's a great idea. And if you can pray for 24 hours, nonstop, fantastic. And if you can pray the whole week and you don't need sleep, uh, fine, fantastic, if you can do that. But why do people pray 24-7? And why do they announce it? And why do they boast about it? Because they think that God won't hear their prayer if they pray for half an hour, but if they pray all night, then God's going to be really impressed and is much more likely to answer because it shows their seriousness and, and God will eventually listen. And so people use language like, we're breaking down the walls of heaven. You serious again? You're breaking down the walls of heaven. What, God shut the walls and you, with your prayers and your voice and you're staying up for 24 hours, you're breaking down those walls. God is unwilling to listen to you, and you have to persuade. What kind of God is that that you're worshiping? I think that's just an attempt to manipulate, and it doesn't work. I mean, if you are married to somebody or if you've got a very close friend or whatever, do you seriously think that by them talking to you for 24 hours, it's called nagging, that, that, that you're going to get it? Do you think that we can nag God? Is that what we think prayer is, nagging God? I was in a meeting once on another kind of angle, and uh, I was told, um, David, do you want to speak in tongues? And I said, I'd, actually, I don't particularly care. I said, I, I wouldn't mind speaking in tongues if that's a gift that God has for me because I had no problem with it still existing. But I said, there are other things that I kind of have higher than that priority, but I don't mind. And you know what they said I had to do? They said, you have to sit around this candle 
You have to hold hands, you have to let your mind go, and you have to keep singing, keep repeating, and eventually the tongues will come. Well, I'll bet you they would after hours of doing that. But that's just psychological. You can do the whole sleep deprivation thing, food deprivation thing, ecstatic worship, work yourself into a trance and experience God. You can do the ritual formula thing. I used to do this all the time. I used to think a prayer wasn't really a prayer unless I said, in the name of Jesus. Now, there's nothing wrong with saying in the name of Jesus, and it's a good reminder that that's who we're praying, and it's not in our own authority. But if you use in the name of Jesus, I'm praying for all this, and then I say in the name of Jesus, and it's like abracadabra, it will happen. No. You can use the name of Jesus, but you may not know Jesus. As long as we don't regard it as some kind of magic incantation. You see, for a lot of people, prayer is just psychic energy worked up by human emotion and effort. And I want you to uh, turn to 1 Kings to see my, I think this is my favorite story. To be honest, my favorite story in the whole Bible. 1 Kings chapter 18, um, I'll not read it all, but you can read the story for yourself. It begins at verse uh, 16 with Elijah on Mount Carmel, where King Ahab assembles all the prophets on Mount Carmel. Elijah challenges the people, says, how, you, are you, how long will you waver between two opinions, either Baal or God? Elijah's the only one of the prophets left, and so basically they have a contest. They both prepare altars, and they call on God, and the God who answers by fire, he is God. So the prophets of Baal, they choose one of their uh, bulls, they prepare it, and so on. And in verse 26, we read this. So they took the bull given them and prepared it. Then they called on the name of Baal from morning till noon. O Baal, answer us, they shouted. But there was no response, no one answered. And they danced around the altar they had made. At noon, Elijah began to taunt them. Shout louder, he said. Surely he is a god. Perhaps he is deep in thought. Or busy, or he's traveling. Maybe he's sleeping and must be awakened. There's the biblical justification for sarcasm, by the way. Maybe he's sleeping or must be awakened. God's asleep. And what did they do? They didn't get it, did they? They shouted louder. So they did shout louder. Elijah says shout louder. So they shouted louder. Not only that, they slashed themselves with swords and spears as was their custom until their blood flowed. This is serious worship. These are people dancing around, cutting themselves in order for Baal to answer. Midday passed. And they continued their frantic prophesying until the time for the evening sacrifice. So they're at it for hours. But look at these words. But there was no response. No one answered. No one paid attention. What were they doing? They were occultists. They were relying on magic and chanting and ritual and getting psyched up and cutting themselves and dancing in a trance. What did Elijah do? He was Mr. Cool. He gets the altar of the Lord, which is in ruins. He takes 12 stones, one for each of the tribes descended from Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord had come, saying, Your name shall be Israel. With the 12 stones, he builds an altar in the name of the Lord. He digs a trench round it, large enough to hold two sayers of seeds. He arranges the wood, cuts the bull into pieces, lays it on the wood. Then he says to them, Fill four large jars with water and pour it on the offering and do the wood. Do it again, he said. Do it again, he said. At the time of sacrifice, the prophet Elijah stepped forward and prayed. O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known today that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and I've done all these things at your command. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, so that these people will know that you, O Lord, are God 
and that you are turning their hearts back again. Then the fire of the Lord fell and burned up the sacrifice, the wood, the stones, and the soil, and also licked up the water in the trench. When all the people saw this, they fell prostrate and cried, The Lord, He is God! The Lord, He is God! The prophets of Baal danced, cut themselves, shouted for hours and hours and hours and hours. Elijah steps forward, and in a two-sentence prayer, the fire of God falls. Now, this is not saying you shouldn't pray for long times. It's not saying, but it is saying you shouldn't pray for long times, thinking that the longer you pray, the more likely God is to answer. That is not the God of the Bible. That is a God of your own imagination. The people who know their God do great exploits. The people who know their God have confidence in prayer. Jesus said, when you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. When the disciples came to Jesus and said, teach us how to pray, what did he say? He said, our Father in heaven. There's no technique. He didn't tell them what position to be in. He didn't tell them whether they, what kind of food they should have. He didn't tell them a whole series of things just to learn. He said, this is how you pray, our Father in heaven. Now, there's more teaching involved about prayer than, than that, and that's what John goes on to talk about, but that's the essence and the basis of it. It's prayer that has to be offered with the will of God. It's not about manipulating to get my will done. Don't we do that? We decide we're going to do something, then we go and ask God to bless. Wrong way around, completely the wrong way around. It's a matter of knowing God well enough to pray for His will to be done. Assurance and confidence in prayer is about intimacy with, intimacy with God and the degree to which our wills are aligned to His. David Jackman puts this beautifully. He says, our conversation with God is to be uninhibited, open, and relaxed, yet not without reverence and submission. But in 1 John, you'll notice a word that says, if. If we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. And let's just talk about some of these ifs that are there in prayer. Sometimes we pray generally not sure what the will of God is. We may do that often. But other times there's an assurance because His will has been revealed to us. And I want to suggest to you just some simple marks of biblical prayer. That there are lots of, you know, timings and length and things like that. We work out according in terms of our own circumstances. But I would want to argue that the Bible teaches that prayer should have these components at least. Obviously, the Lord's Prayer and the guidelines that are there, but these are in addition to that. The first is that it must be in faith. Mark 11, verse 24, therefore I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. Now, the important thing here is that this is not you thinking, I would like to have. It's like Andrew, you know, Andrew says, I'm asking for 6,000 pounds. I believe I get it. If I believe enough, I'll get that money. That's not what that means. It's like when you go to a prayer meeting and sometimes says, Lord, we believe you for 10 people to become Christians. Why? Why 10? Why not 100? Because my faith only goes to 10. So their salvation is dependent on your faith. Yes, it's, it's wrong. It, that's not the way that it is. The faith is this. 
It's just an absolute confidence and trust in God. And sometimes we find ourselves praying, and we say, Lord, I don't know what the situation here is. Not my will, but yours be done. But other times we're coming, and we, and we, we are aware that this is God's will. But we pray in faith, not in the faith of the power of our words, but faith in the God to whom we are praying. Faith that He means what He says. Prayer is to be in the name of Jesus, John 14, 14. You may ask me for anything in my name and I will do it. Again, not the magical incantation, but just simply we are looking for the will of Jesus to be done. We are not praying about ourselves. We are praying for the will of Christ, for Christ to be glorified in our life. Prayer is to be offered by those who abide in Christ, John 15, 7. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be given to you. It's not ask what you wish, then you will remain. It's you remain. And the most important thing in prayer is our relationship with Jesus Christ and that His Word is in us. Have you ever done that? You've sat down to pray, you've opened up the Bible, you've flipped through your daily reading as quickly as you can because you want to get on to the really important stuff, which is to tell the Lord what a heavy day you've got and can He please help? But the reality is that you need to focus on Christ and the heaviness of the day that you have, whilst not unimportant, fades into insignificance compared with the glory and the beauty of Jesus Christ. It's the song, Trust and Obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. We hear His goodwill. He abides in us still with all who will trust and obey. So, prayer is offered by, by those who abide in Christ. Prayer also is on the basis of forgiveness. It's very important that we forgive. Mark 11, when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive him so that your Father in heaven may forgive you your sins. Now, the importance of that is this. If your relationship with your Christian brother or sister and with other people, if your relationship is soured because you are full of bitterness, how do you expect to be able to have a relationship with God to pray to God? You're asking God to forgive you and you are refusing to forgive other people. It doesn't work. And it's as plain a teaching in the Bible as you can get. When you come, if you've got anything against your brother, forgive them. It's an essential part of prayer. Really hard to pray with a bitter heart against other people. Should be accompanied by obedience. 1 John 3, 22. Receive from him anything we ask because we obey his commands and what pleases him. Again, it's the opposite of coming to God in prayer, seeking to manipulate God. Instead, we're coming saying, Lord, I want to do your will. And it's not for our gratification. James 4 verse 3. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. That's what's so pathetic and and so weak about the, the church in, in the West today that we've had this teaching that Christianity is about me and it's about me getting from God what I want and Jesus is a great way to get things and the prayer of Jabez, that's what it's all about. It's all about me receiving. But that's not the prayer that's been spoken of here. What's the result? Verse 15. 
If we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have what we asked of him. God hears, but God answers. It may be slow in being realized, but we can know that the answer is coming. It's a bit like we say the check is in the post, but in this case, it really is. It really is in the post. Our prayers are answered because they're in line with God's will, not ours. Prayer is about our minds being changed, not God's. God could do without our prayers. He doesn't need our prayers, but He chooses not to do without our prayers. Now, there is one objection I want to deal with, and that's, what about unanswered prayer? Well, prayer is not a blank check. Loving parents don't give their children everything they ask for. Parents who couldn't care less, parents who are a bit stupid, do give their children everything they ask for and then justify it by saying, we do it because we love you. No, you do it because you're lazy. You do it because you can't be bothered to discipline. You do it because you can't be bothered with the hassle. But a loving parent does not give their child everything they ask for. Matthew 7, 9 to 11, which of you, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Jesus is saying, of course, you won't. Or if he asks for a fish, we'll give him a snake. If you then, though, uh, though you're evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? Sometimes we pray, like Paul who had a thorn in the flesh, like Jesus who prayed in Gethsemane, Father, if it is possible, take this cup from me. And it's not what we expect. Sometimes we will ask God to do something that if we were God, if we dared to think in those terms, we think the obvious thing would be to do what we ask. But real prayer is to say, Lord, I'm asking this for you. I'm asking this from you. But I trust you whatever answer you might give. Sometimes God delays his answer, like Jacob wrestling with the angel. We have to wrestle in prayer. We don't. The Bible doesn't just say we give up praying just because we don't get an immediate answer. Relational prayer doesn't mean a kind of casual, hi, God, I'm here, I want this, okay, bye, I'm off. That's not how it works. Sometimes you do wrestle in prayer. Our assurance and our confidence in prayer does not stop us praying. Let me give you a personal example. Um, There's a man called Mr. Brown in England. Well, he's he's dead now, long dead. But he was in a place called uh, Cheltenham. And when I was a very young boy, I don't even remember this, we used to attend a brethren assembly there. And when we left to go up to Easter Ross, uh, they had a farewell meal for the Robertsons. And Mr. Brown stood up and he uh, announced in the brethren assembly that he was going to pray for the wee boy David. That was me a long time ago. He was going to pray for David because he said, I am 100% certain, absolutely convinced that he is going to be, uh, well, brethren, he couldn't say minister, could he? So he said missionary someday. He said, I'm absolutely convinced. He was, he had no doubt whatsoever. And I remember him, uh, I don't remember him, but I remember uh, my father telling me that he told my father uh, that, and at times when I was showing no interest in the Christian faith, it was a great comfort to my father. And Mr. Brown was right. But the interesting thing is this. Although he was convinced of it, did he stop praying? No. He announced, he said, I will pray for that boy every single day until the day that I die. And as far as I know, that's exactly what he did. Somebody I've never met. Well, somebody I can't remember meeting. Praying. See, that's what prayer is. You have a confidence 
that doesn't mean you stop. In fact, you continue because you have that confidence. Maybe another reason that we're not experiencing answered prayer is sometimes we don't pray. Just the words of James, they're, they're, they're familiar to us. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You want something, but you don't get it. You kill and covet, but you cannot have what you want. You quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. You do not have because you do not ask, and when you do ask, you don't get it because you're asking with the wrong motives. We're just too self-centered. We just don't have the right relationship with God. Psalm 66, verse 18, we sang it. If I had cherished sin in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. It's not saying you've got to be perfect in order to be able to pray to God. But it is saying you can't be double-minded. You can't, on the one hand, go and pray to an almighty God, and on the other hand, live a life which is contrary to that. God sees and God knows. And then just absolutely the final thing is this. Jesus says, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you to go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. Then the Father will give you whatever you ask in my name. This is my command, love each other. I've heard it said about somebody, they were a very prayerful person, but they weren't a very gracious or loving person. In that case, they weren't a very prayerful person. They're not a very prayerful person. And I also want to say this. If people think, well, they're a very loving person, but they don't pray, what kind of love is that? Because what's the best thing for the people who you say that you love? That God works in their lives. And how does God work in their lives? In response to your prayers, because that's a relationship that He has with us. Assurance in prayer is based upon love in our lives, the love of God and the love of His people and love for those who are lost. Some of us say, and I'm one of them, prayer is the most difficult part of the Christian life. Then we shrug our shoulders and we get on with the rest of our lives. It's wrong. It's just wrong. We need confidence. Not confidence that we're great praying people. Not confidence that we've got all the fancy language. Not confidence that we can stand up in front of people and pray great, eloquent prayers. Not confidence that we've got the stamina to, to, to pray for 24-7 or whatever. Not confidence that God has whispered a wee word in our ears that gives us assurance that other people don't have. It's confidence that God is who He says He is, that Jesus is who He says He is, and that we have that relationship with Him which comes through belief and trust in Jesus Christ as the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. There's a cocky arrogance that's horrible. There's a confident humility which is wonderful. When we look at Jesus, it's surely that latter that we have. Amen. May God bless His Word to us.